This is the Talk Magazine podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of Diaspora Dialogues. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career through mentorship programs, professional development seminars, and public talks and conversations. We record our events in order to bring the best of Canadian writing and thinking to you through this series. In this episode, author Norma Dunning is interviewed by Zalika Reed Benta as she discusses her work and touches on her new short story collection, Annie Muktuk and Other Stories. I'm just going to welcome uh, Jackie Wilde from TELUS Manitoba to the stage. TELUS is a, a very kind supporter of ours uh, for our programming here in Winnipeg, which included our events yesterday and today, and also our mentoring programs as well. So please join me as Jackie joins us on the stage and and does a check presentation for the kind support that TELUS provided for us this year. <laughs> so this is going to be an interview with uh, Norman du- Norma Dunning, although I don't like to say interview, so I'm going to... I feel like, you know, in Mean Girls, when it's like, how do I even begin to explain Regina George? So now I'm like, how do I even begin to explain Norma Dunning? Um, you know, so Dr. Norma Dunning is an Inuit writer, scholar, researcher, and grandmother. Her short story collection, Annie Muktuk and Other Stories, challenges readers' perceptions about Inuit people. It won the 2018 Indie Book of the Year Award, Short Stories, and the 2017 Danuta Gleed Literary Award. Her short story, Ellipsy, won the Writers Guild of Alberta's Howard O'Hagan Award. The collection was also shortlisted for the 2018 Robert Roach City of Edmonton Book Prize. Her first collection of poetry titled Eskimo Pie, A Poetics of Inuit Identity is scheduled to release in the new year. After New Year's. <laughs> After New Year's. Uh, her second collection of short stories is slated to launch in October 2020, and a book of nonfiction concerning assimilative practices experienced by Inuit Canadians is scheduled for release in September 2021. Can we have a hand for wow. just like... <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so um, I actually just wanted to start off because when you and I spoke a little the other day before, before the panel... And you're asking what kind of questions would be asked. I was like, oh, you know, just stuff like about the writing process. And then you and I <laughs> got into this whole thing about like, oh, my God, I hate when people ask us about Dude, the writing process. So, Never ask a writer. <laughs> well, like, I have my reasons. I know why I don't want to be mm-hmm. asked about the yeah. process. Can you can you like cause I, it might seem like kind of like a run of a mill question that people ask writers, a kind of obvious question, like, how do you write? What's your writing process? So can you kind of just give a bit of background about why the question it's terrible for you. <laughs> for me, it's terrible because I I don't really have a process that is, you know, a definitive process. And I think um, when people ask that question, it's like saying, where is the magic bean? You know, how do you get published? I do know of writers who, who are far more organized and uh, clear thinking than I am and, and who, you know, sit down and create storyboards and, and force or discipline themselves to write for two or three hours a day. I don't work that way. And um, for me, the idea of a story is very snap. It's very quick. But then it sits inside of my head for months before I, I put it onto a page. And my characters, like the, 
the characters in Annie, uh, they're very real to me. They're very vivid. And I always say that, you know, they move into my apartment and they're not leaving until I finish that story. So if I, if I want to have my apartment back again, <laughs> then I better, you know, finish writing the story. So I don't have like a definitive process and I don't have, uh, I don't, so I, my schedule is, I hate saying busy because everybody says they're busy and that's always an excuse, but I do work two full-time jobs right now. So it's, you know, it's finding that kind of time where, where you can just relax and be able to write without thinking about, you know, a trillion other things. My process is that I do not have a process. <laughs> That's my best. <laughs> so you say the characters kind of like move into your apartment. Do they you? do. And so what does that look like for you? Like, what is it just you, you carry with them everywhere you go? Or? They're, they're right there. And when I was writing the story, my sisters and I, I remember I would get up in the morning and think, I wonder what the girls are going to do today. Because, I, you know, it isn't so planned out. It isn't so locked out. And I don't think I would ever be able to write that way to, you know, be able to sit down and plan a story. I, to me, the, the story creates itself as you're going along. And I feel them. I feel uh, for this collection, this collection, my acknowledgement or my dedication at the front is I am, this book was written for my ancestors, it is their words written from my heart, and it is. And so it's, um, it's a story of stories of my grandfather, my mother, my aunties. And they're not presented as family, they're presented as fictional characters. So for me, like when I, when I do the, this kind of writing, you have to remember the, you know, the representation of your family and how are you going to represent them and, and how are you going to honor them? That's the most important part is how do you honor, you know, the, especially these characters, how do I honor them well? And I think, you know, as writers, we carry that burden of when we write something, people, you know, they assume that what we're saying is sort of a blanket statement on behalf of all Inuit or whatever race we are writing from. But um, it isn't. But at the same time, you have to keep that, that burden with you and, and you should carry it as a writer. You should have that kind of thinking towards your characters and their importance. So yeah, let's talk about Annie and your collection. I love it. It's wickedly funny. It's just, it's, it's great. It's poignant and it's beautiful. I was saying there are very, there's very rare a time where I uh, read a book and go, I wish I would, I had written that sentence. I wish I had written that line. And I came across a few of them in your collection because like, you know, the story uh, she offers herself provocatively in sexual relations openly and willingly. It was just mind-blowing to me because it's five pages, and in that five pages, the reader finds out so much. I mean, I'm going to read the first four sentences because I think it's brilliant. It had been years since I had taken a blow to the nose. Years. Lying on the motel bed, staring into the ceiling, I remembered the last time a guy had hit me. I was in grade four, out in the playground. So this is the kind of thing that you 
study in an MFA class. Like I took a class in openings and you, this is something that we would dissect just because of how much information that you get. So like that, that was kind of my introduction to, to Annie and you spoke a little bit about it, but can you, can you tell us a little bit more about the collection? And then I'm going to ask. Um, for Annie specifically, I was reading a, you know, Hugh Brody is longtime Canadian anthropologist. I believe he's now, um, He's a, a research chair of all of Canada or something. You know, he's, he's very well established. Anyhow, he had written a book and he had been in the North for about a month and had done whatever work. But during the course of reading his book, he was talking about being invited to an Inuit family's party. And it's like a Friday night house party. And when he arrived, um, he's told by an Inuit man, hey, you know, my wife is in the bedroom right now and she's just doing up anybody who comes through the door. So, you know, do you want her? So for me, I'm reading that and it, and I got so, I don't often get angry, I just don't. But when I read that, I just got so angry at how this white anthropologist with a huge audience and a loud voice can make this representation of the Inuit women as people who are disposable, as people who can just be used, and who can, you know, have a white guy walk into a room and have an Inuit guy say, hey, my wife's doing up everybody. You want to throw her? And, and to me, to even have put that into the work that I was reading, that he had written, I thought, you know, this happens far too often where men get to talk about women like that. And more importantly, men get to talk about Aboriginal women in a certain way and it becomes normalized and it's acceptable. And so I, um, I created Annie. And so she, she has that, that opposition in thinking of, you know what? I'm going to do that guy tonight. And I'm going to have a lot of fun with him. And that's it. I don't want to have the morning after. I don't want the breakfast. I don't want to talk to you once we're finished. I'm just going to go into this room. I'm going to have a blast with this guy. And that's all it's about. This is how Annie begins, is that she, you know, she is this sort of woman. And uh, within that story, there is... There is Johnny Cochran and there is Moses Henry and they, the one character is falling in love with Annie, but jo Johnny Cochran doesn't want, you can't go with her. Everybody goes with her, you know, you can't go with her. And so it's this, you know, this uh, pulling of friendship between two men over a woman, you know, who would, is not thought of as being proper. So it, so she was a wonderful character to write, and uh, I had a lot of fun with her. <laughs> she was, you know, she was, it was good to be able to write that way, because I think, uh, especially Aboriginal women, we can do that kind of pushback out there to the rest of non-Aboriginal Canada. And I think it's important, but it was also fun. Like for me, it was fun. You know, there was a lot of humor in it. There was, it was fun to, to put it together, to create these scenarios and to, you know, just, just to work with whatever happened. And again, it was not planned. You know, like there's no, 
no real sitting down in ABC. It's just, it's as it comes out on the page. I was actually going to ask about the humor because like I said, it's such a, it's such a funny book. And I know that a lot of the time, sometimes writers will like write something and then people will come up to them and say, oh yeah, your book is very funny. And they were like, oh, I didn't mean it to be funny. <laughs> um, but that's great. Thanks. And so I was just wondering if the humor was like something that you intentionally thought of or if the humor just kind of came out because like I, I said, it's very funny and it, and it, um, and it, it gives a little bit of breathing room, but it's also highlights the sort of, you know, horrific reality sometimes. And so it has this really interesting duality in it. And so, yeah, I just wanted to know like the process of the humor and the wryness and the slyness. And, I think uh, as Inuit people and as Aboriginal Canadians overall, we carry a great deal of humor with us. And I, I think a part of that is a survival mechanism that you, you just you learn to, to be that way, to operate that way. But I also think like there are times when I think a lot of what is written here is very dark and it's, uh, it demonstrates a great deal of disparity. And it's something that, especially in Canada, we don't want to talk about how Inuit in the North continue to starve. You know, that's okay in our country. It's okay that 76% of all Inuit children can drop out of high school. You know, that isn't something to get excited about, but we should get excited about the cost of oil per barrel. So to me, there's a way to, to bring an audience to, through humor, to still think about what is actually being spoken. When I would write that humor, I didn't know it was going to come. It, it came. And uh, I like it if I'm writing and I make myself laugh. So if I've made myself laugh, I think, okay, now it's funny. But if I, if I haven't made myself laugh, then it didn't pass the test. So it's, <laughs> it, just, it just sort of comes along with it. And it's quite surprising how, how people take this book in. And, um, you know, it's been written as a book of Inuit women empowerment. But I never, ever sat down and thought, you know, hey, I'm going to put together this and this kick-ass Inuit woman book, I, I never did that, you know. And the, the stories are written you know, over three to four years while I was in university, and I would only be able to write when I went on to Christmas break or a spring break. And uh, so I didn't always have a lot of time. I will say that, you know, Kabaluna Red, which is the, the opening story, it received the James Patrick... Follinsby Award on campus, on the U of A campus for creative writing. And the first seven pages of Annie received the uh, Stephen Kalpaka Award. And so, you know, within this collection, there's these stories that have received some recognition. And, but it took all that time to, to build the stories. It doesn't, you know, I, like I, I don't sit down and think, oh, no, I'm going to write something funny. But uh, if it happens, it happens. And, and I think, you know, as people who write should think that way and, and to not put a burden on top of yourself that, oh, I have to make this funny or I have to make this incredibly sad. I think that, you know, to just let yourself go and be able to write, so, it's so important. And I think you'll produce better work 
Did you ever have a struggle with yourself about that though? Like, did you ever feel like you started off thinking, I'm going to write about this particular like theme in this particular story, but then you had to tell yourself no to just let it go. Like, did you ever have a sort of inner conflict with uh, how you with how you wrote your stories? Well, for me, you know, like it's personal in in many many ways because I am talking about my family and uh, and I am talking about my ancestors, and so that always stays somewhere in the back of your head you know, that representation that I've already talked about. I will say that there are parts in here where I write violence and I would finish writing whatever part of the violence I was writing. And I would think, well, hey, that was good. I'm ready to vomit. I, I've written myself into puking, so therefore it's a good story. <laughs> So you have that kind of emotional attachment, you know, like you, you do. They are, for me, these are like, Annie is like my girl. I have three grown sons, so Annie's my girl. You know, I never had a daughter, so this is it. <laughs> you know, so the, you have this kind of uh, relationship with, that, with have you, that. What have you learned from Annie? What have I learned? Yeah, have you learned anything from Oh, him? man. <laughs> Annie taught me so many things. I think one of the biggest things I... I learned way too much about the Copyright Act. <laughs> I mean, how boring is that? But I mean, I, I did. I learned way too much about Copyright Act. I've learned, you know, the importance of self-promotion to not depend on a publisher to market your work, to take every reading regardless. And there have been readings where there's four people, and then there have been readings where there's 40 people. And for me, it's, you know, to get out there and to, to love your work enough to have others love it. And I think that's, you know, really important, but there's work in behind that. And one of the things I was told was, you know, you should get an author's page on Facebook. I don't really like Facebook. Actually, I didn't mind it when people were taking pictures of food. <laughs> I was like, well, that's interesting plate. To me, it became work. But it, and, and now, as a published author, the expectation is that you will be on Twitter, you will be on Facebook, you will have every form of social media platform out there, and you're on it all the time, and you're supposed to be, you know, the, but what, I think of it, it becomes work. And when Facebook is sending me a weekly message reminding me, Norma, you're losing your audience. You haven't posted for a long, long time. And I think you're not my boss, but they are. <laughs> like they become this kind of virtual boss. So I learned the importance of marketing Annie yourself. And it doesn't mean that I would, I've never asked to be you know, at a reading or to be included or anything like that, but to take the opportunity and regardless of the audience, how big or how small, to get out there. You know, if you believe in your words, stand by them. That's what she taught me so far. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you've, you've mentioned that, quite a bit, you know, like loving your work enough to have other people love it, to believe in your words. And so um, just listening to you speak, you, yeah, like you said, like you live with these characters and I've heard you say like some very visceral reactions and, and emotions like making yourself laugh or making yourself puke or what is the, 
most visceral reaction you've had to to writing if you have one just like it's uh how upset i can make myself like in the um second collection of short stories i wrote a scene uh, the last 40 45 pages is the follow up to to the story of Annie Mucklock because in this one she goes up north and she's with a guy who's going to be a pentecostal preacher and we all know like that's not going to work like not Annie and a pentecostal preacher that's not going to work <laughs> but you know there's sort of at the, in this one it's almost like there's kind of like this happily ever after but it isn't and you know for me when i wrote it i thought oh no she'll never this is not going to fly so in the second collection i have about 40 45 pages where i do Annie who is now 60 years old surprisingly she's living in victoria <laughs> because i lived in victoria last year for one year the whitest town i ever lived in and <laughs> honestly i used to get on the bus and think how many people on here have brown eyes and i would count so it, like if i had a day where there were five people with brown eyes like good day today there are five people on the bus brown eyes so i do the follow up of her but before she ends up in victoria she is raped and it, and writing that rape i remember it was a saturday and i my problem when i get writing i'll if i put a pot of water on to boil for tea or if i stick something in the oven and i think okay i got 20 minutes and i'm going to write then i forget about the pot of water and it boils dry and then the house stinks and something burns in the oven but i was It was a Saturday and I'd put a frozen pizza in the oven and I thought, you know, I got 20 minutes. And so I write that rape, but at the end of it all, it's just like you I'm upset. <laughs> you know, like you you've written yourself into this state of self-created anxiety on behalf of your character. And uh it's like well, I have to, I have to settle down. I just have to go someplace and go settle down. But I think we should have that kind of emotion and that kind of uh, attachment for our characters. And if we're not getting that, it isn't falling onto the page. So if you're if you're writing rape or you're writing violence and and you're not upsetting yourself, well then to me you haven't done a good job. Maybe rewrite it. Sit down and rewrite it. So Do you want to read something from Penny? Um, sure. <laughs> I'll read the shortest of the short stories it is not a happy one so be prepared. I've had a one girl I read you know I read to this group of it was so silly they were called the Anthropology Society of Grant McEwen University and so there were like six people <laughs> but they, I thought it was so cool that they even came out that like, I'm sure they could have done anything else. Anyhow, the one at the end of that one of the girls came to me and she said, "You know, Norma, before you start to read, you should tell people you know, like a disclaimer, you might get upset." And I thought, "I've never thought to do that." So for the first time, I'm putting out a disclaimer. <laughs> you guys might get upset. This is a story of a woman, an Inuit woman who is sitting in her kitchen. She's drunk. and she's reflecting back on her time in residential school so this is how it begins kablona red 
Kelowna Red, that's it. Better start drinking the wine before noon. It's so wonderful to feel that beautiful red liquid glide down my throat. It's like going home, all warm and wonderful. Is there really anything better than sitting at home tanked in your very own kitchen? Husband is off up north doing his bit for God, the queen, and his country. The queen, remember when she flew into Churchill? What a day, what excitement there was. We all curled up our hair, shaved our legs, donned our big parkas, and headed off to the airport. Excited to see royalty step off a small plane and wave at us all. Who cared that she only stuck around for a half hour? She showed up, didn't she? What a party we had at the Legion that night. All that old-time fiddle music, all the elders and the young people. We just danced the northern lights away. It was glorious. Just a bunch of starry-eyed Eskimos. Eskimo. Now that's a word. White word. White word for white people to wrap around their pink tongues. Esquimo. Spell it any way you want, and it all comes out the same. Skid row and all. Oh, should light up another sig here. A roly. Make your own. Always make your own. The North teaches you that. Make your everything. Food, clothes, fun, much fun. Inhale, exhale. Drag on that homemade no-filter sig. Get the tobacco stuck between your teeth and absolutely never floss. Huh. I mutter to the empty kitchen. Ah, the North. I met him there. A tall, strapping country boy from the South. I loved him from the minute we looked at each other. Me, a little Inuk, and him, the farm boy, fresh from the boar. He looked magnificent in his blue uniform. I would have done anything for him, and I did. We drank and danced and laughed. I felt important. I felt white. Look at me. Look at me with this white guy. He gave my world meaning. We married and I got a new name. I could throw out my old name and no one would ever have to know. They would never have to know about my sisters or my mothers or my father. I could start fresh and new. I could invent a new me. I couldn't get rid of the skin color though. That was a drawback. Always long sleeves and pants, wear a dress with dark nylon, sleep in rollers every night of your life and run red lipstick around your mouth first thing every morning, noon, and night. People could assume what they wanted. I didn't have to give any details. I would only be his wife. That's all they ever had to know. We got married because I was pregnant. Oh, let's have some more of that Kel Red. Let that gallon jug glug glug into my glass. Bring it to my lips. Let it slide down the old pipes. Ah, that's good. 
Yeah, there was one thing that I was good at. Learned that at school too. Young girls surrounded by all those priests and brothers and nuns. Father Mercredi was the first. Puts me in the punishment room and leaves me there alone, like solitary. Shows up after dinner dishes have been scraped, spit on, and polished. Kitchen crew is gone, and there we are. He tells me not to scream. Puts his sweaty palm over my mouth, yanks down the heavy underwear, the woolen armor of the little girls. Pushes my back up against a wall and rips into my body like a serpent. I close my eyes, and tears drool down my face, snot drips from my nose. My heart pounds hard against that cold cement wall. He wiggles this way and that like a snowshoe hare stuck in a snare. The pain splits beads of panic off my forehead. He's finished. Tucks his thing back under his black robe, slowly peels his hand off my mouth, mutters to me in French, don't talk about this. And he's gone. I hear his footsteps down the hallway. I slide down to the cement floor and soft sobbly. I hurt. I bleed. I don't know who to tell. Sister Mary comes to release me from the room. She sees the blood dripping down to my white socks. She puts her hand around my mouth too and quickly walks me to the bathroom. I try between whimpers to tell her it was Father Mercredi. She tries to tells me to be quiet, to stay still. She leaves and comes back with a white cotton pad. She tells me that I will have this happen to me every month. I tell her no. She gets stern and says, oui, ma chérie. She hands me the pad and mimes for me to put it into my bloody underwear between the hags. That memory makes me giggle now. I might have been nine years old. Every month, my foot. Oh, time for another quick shot here. The kitchen clock is reminding me of that place. Time was everything there. Yeah, I had them all. All the fathers, first Mercredi, then Shundi, Father Vendredi, Samedi, and Dimanche, and let's not forget the rest of the good old boys, Lundi and Mercredi. I never really knew their names. I just gave them the names of the week. It all depended on what day they showed up. That went on for six years, every night. It was like word got around that place, and I was sent to that room every day after school. Eventually, I did have to start using that bale of cotton between my legs every month, but that didn't stop them. No, those old pairs, they weren't about to fuss over something like that. But I learned one thing. I learned to pretend to like it. They learned that they didn't have to put their hand around my mouth anymore. I would breathe hard like a throat song. I would wiggle and I would moan softly into their ears. While they were pumping, 
I was praying, praying for them to burn, praying for them to die, praying to get myself the hell out of hell. I figured out another thing too. Oh, let's just light another cig. I learned to get good grades, not just any kind of good grades. I learned that if I became the smartest person in the province for French, I could be moved ahead in my school. I could be like a prisoner released on good behavior. Marks mattered, and I got them. I finished high school a month before my 16th birthday. I led the province in French marks. I had become en Francaisized. They made a spectacle of me. They couldn't hide me anymore. They couldn't keep me in the punishment room now. The bishop even knew about me and came to school one day to shake my hand while he was congratulating me on this big accomplishment. I prayed for him to burn like the others. I smiled my you-got-to-hell smile, and, and I winked at him. I was set free. Oh, the jug is getting empty. Shit, I should have bought more of this stuff. I only get to do this when he isn't around. Otherwise, I have to be the white wife. The white wife with the white picket fence, whitewashed and white dried. Ah, Eskimo. What a nice white word. Too young to be legally on my own, I was fostered out to a French family. I had been in that place so long that I couldn't remember my mother's faces. My sisters had been taken away from me years before. I had no idea where anyone was anymore. It didn't matter. Most days, it didn't matter. I got to be in a real home, in a real house, with a real older couple who took care of me like I was some kind of Inuit princess. I had my own room with my own books and a dresser with a nice round mirror. I loved it. I worked at their restaurant and I started to learn that life wasn't all bad. I learned to cook good and then I met him. He courted me like I mattered, wouldn't kiss me on the first date. I changed that. We had a pile of kids, lots of them, wall to wall. We moved further north, camped, hunted, fished, went whaling and berry picking. We took that bundle of brats with us everywhere. Ah, it's a good life now. You never really get over things. You just move on. Move on to laughter, move on to being alive, move on to growing old. And when he's not here, then you can really remember and you can sip all the Kelowna red and smoke all the cigs you want. After all, it's the Inuit way. There. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely something where you kind of just have to sit with it for a bit and just kind of like mull it over. Disclaimer. <laughs> um, so you you also spoke about this when I asked you to kind of like um, talk a bit about the collection and set, and you said that you 
you got very angry with the way that the women were represented. And, and you also talk about that in a CBC article where you said that what inspired her was getting mad. So I wanted to talk about sort of just like this idea of, of anger and how it can also just be an instrument for change and an instrument for growth, just because, you know, sometimes there's a lot of like negative connotations with that word. And so I was just really interested when I was reading that about how like getting angry was what like in, kind of catalyzed this this sort of kind of like <laughs> I'm not an angry person. I'm really not an angry person. But um, you know, there's all this stereotypical thinking of Inuit people, especially, and it and it's uh, you know this thinking of uh, we are people of long ago, like we're not modern people. We do get up in the morning and we do buy Tim Hortons and a newspaper, and you know we do go to work and. Um, you know, I think for Aboriginal people, we get, we get boxed in to this long ago and, and being traditional and the, you know, the expectation that, that that is all you are and that's all you are ever going to be. So in my doctoral dissertation, I write about how I'm the Eskimo who disappoints people because, you know, the, the assumption is that you're from the North. My parents, I'm number five of six children. My parents left the North just before I was born. So I'm a disappointment because I'm born in the South. And then uh, there's the skin color. And I've had people say to me, well, your dad was white, right? As if, you know, that qualifies me as a better person because not all of this blood is Inuit that's running up and down my veins. You know, the uh, expectation that you will not achieve, that you cannot, you know, be a university professor, that you cannot write books, that you, you know, that you're these people of long ago. And that's, and you're always the Eskimo in the fur ringed hood standing at a seal hole. And that's how people think of you. And you're, you should have a harpoon. Where is your harpoon? <laughs> And then I come up, I always say, I'm okay till I leave my apartment. I'm okay in the apartment, but then you leave the apartment. And if you identify, there's all these other questions that come. Well, are you fluent? Are you? No, I'm not completely fluent. Really? <gasps> what about raw meat? When was the last time you had that? When was the last time you had that? <laughs> you know, like it's, and uh, we talked about this earlier, uh, having a professor say to me, so there's just her and I, so Norma, your three sons, do they all have the same dad? And I'm thinking, holy, would you ask a white woman? Would you dare to ask a white woman that question? So there's all these uh, assumptions that come along with identifying as an Inuit Canadian and the, um, the kind of questioning that, you, that comes to you. And I always think, like, I would never ask anybody that. Like, how can people do it? But they do it. And one way of taking the, those kind of things that happen is to sit down, write a book. <laughs> so you can do something with that energy that isn't negative. You can, you can sit down with a negative situation and turn it into something else. And when I was going through with my BA and my MA, I did a lot of creative writing courses. 
And I can remember in this one course, there was this tall, skinny, white kid. And what we would, we would do is we would each submit a poem once a week onto a Moodle site. So we read each other's work through the week. And when we arrived into class, then we would give whatever kind of feedback. And this, we're about halfway through. And this skinny, tall, very, and I used to look at these people and think, you know, they're all so skinny. I should cook a pot roast. I should really be cooking a pot roast. They need to be fed. <laughs> and this one guy, though, he, um, that one day he, uh, he had printed, you know, my, my stuff and he held it up similar to this. And he says, you know what, Norma Dunning, all you ever write is shit. You write shit every week. And then every week you bring it in here for us to read. And then we have to put up with your shit. And then he said, nobody will ever publish you. Now, we were in a master's writing class, so it's beyond uh, a BA. And I looked at that guy and I thought, yeah, buddy, I piss you off with my shit. I'm going to go home. I'm writing so much shit this week, and you're going to have to deal with so much more next week. And that's what I did with it. So you can... <laughs> So you can, um, you know, it's because as uh, people of color or people who are marginalized and minorities, I think that, you know, we have this wonderful opportunity to take what happens to us and turn it into something. And it's not a, you know, it's not a real big push, like right in your face push, but it's, it's getting that those things that happen to us, we're able to write them down in some way. And I think that if that white guy from my poetry class, if he thinks about it for five seconds, then I did my job. I did my job as a writer. We have to be able to operate that way because there's, you know, I have grandchildren. And um, I think about how I want them to be able to step into a university and not be looked upon as somebody as less than. And I want them to be able to step into a university and just be accepted and be able to go through and to be able to identify and not have that work against them. So to me, a lot of um, the writing that I do, I think I have them in mind because I want them to have a better path. I want it to be a little more easier to trot upon and to, and to not, um, not feel like they're less than in any way. And so to me, when we're writing, we should, we should always be thinking of the next generation. It's not about us. It's not about us. I don't write this. I don't write this so I can say, hey, look at this, Norma Dunning, look what I pulled off. It's for me. I want other Inuit young people and children to be brave, to be fearless, and to get out there and just be exactly who they are and to be anything that they want to be. And I think uh, as writers, we owe it. We owe it to the next generation. Like, are why, then why aren't, you know, for not having that mindset, 
don't write. <laughs> you know, it's all that simple. You have to think about who's coming up behind us and the importance of breaking trail for them because it's about who comes behind me as a writer, who comes as an Inuit writer, as, a, as an Inuit person who wants to go to university. In Canada in 2011, there were exactly 40, four zero Inuit people who held a PhD. That's sad. Of those 40, 20 are medical doctors. When I go through university, I spend a lot of time, and in my work, I spend a lot of time advocating on behalf of Inuit Canadians. And I think uh, if we don't approach our work with a future, a future sight or a future goal or uh, thinking about the next generations, then we shouldn't be doing it. Speaking of that, just because, um, you know, you mentioned poetry and then you mentioned that, or I mentioned that you have another <laughs> collection. So do you want to talk a little bit more about like your next projects and like, you know, because uh, you, you also spoke about how in the collection it kind of, um, it, it's 40 pages that goes off of uh, oh, uh, Annie. Off so of is Annie. that how that started or did you think about a continuation or did it just, or did the collection come from a different place? Um, well, I was writing my doctoral dissertation, which is so boring, you know, like it's so linear and you just, so if I always have to have something here, like something over here happening. So I started to write this collection and because I wasn't living in Edmonton there, I set, at that time, I set most of the stories in Edmonton. I specifically wrote about Inuit people who are in the South, like me, and um, about 40% of Inuit Canadians are residing in the South, and that population will just get bigger. And that was very intentional, like to not have any kind of Northern setting or any kind of Northern reference with any of the, the characters that were uh, created. So, it, you know, for me, I needed that, that kind of uh, creative outlet to be going on as you're putting together 247 pages of really boring stuff. But I'm sure, <laughs> like, I just, I always need to have that other something over here. So I want, and everybody in that collection is in present day. So some of these stories are set in long ago. But the next collection is everybody's in present day. So they're all Southern-based Inuit characters who are living in present day. And uh, a lot of them were, like, there were stories that I thought about. It's so crazy. Like, some of them, one day I was sitting on the bus, and it's really bizarre. I, it was cold. It was like a minus 40 day. And I got onto the bus. The bus is packed. And, you know what? how it is in public transport, everybody's breathing, so the ice, the ice is building up on all the windows, so you don't even get to really see outside, but you're, and you're like this group of humanity, and everybody stinks, like that's just how it is, and you're stuck on this ETS bus. Anyhow, this, I sat down, and I thought, oh, man, what a stench, and I look over, and this guy looks over at me, and I thought, oh, you're one of mine. You're Inuit. And he says, um, I said, I, so I said, how was your day? And he said, thank you for asking. 
So obviously a homeless Inuit guy living on the streets of Edmonton who never has anybody say, how's your day? So I thought about him for a lot. And uh, I used to look for him then, and I never, ever found him again. So I put him into one of the stories of, of being here in, in this city. So it was, you know, those kind of things that are kind of like everyday things. But, and I think we, you know, we live a lot of our everyday lives without putting very much thought into it. But there are these things that happen to us within a day that I think we should pay more attention to. And perhaps that's what you write about is the everyday, what happens in every day. So, so that's uh, what the second collection is, is more about. So it's, it's nobody way up north, nobody living in long ago and far away. It's all Inuit in the south in present day. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? Okay, so uh, my name is uh, David, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, your readings. And uh, I was wondering, given what, given the uh, plots of your short stories, and uh, have you ever? It it actually sounds like something. Your first story that you read, it actually sounds like something I would probably read in a novel or maybe a novella. And I'm thinking, uh, would you ever have the patience to uh, write? Uh, a longer work of fiction than just a short story. You know, I don't have a lot of interest in it. And I've had other people ask that same question, David, where they say, hey, when's your novel coming out? And I always say, well, never. No. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that, maybe I just don't think big, but I don't think in those kind of longer kinds of writings. And, um, you know, with this book, with Annie and with my sisters and I, um, my publishers said to me, you will not call those novellas. You will call them long, short stories. So that's what I did. But they actually qualify as a novella in terms of page lengths. So I don't know if I could ever, um, you know, write the big book. <laughs> I mean, not a book as big as this. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my second question is, uh, given the fact that you do that, you do or did work two part-time, two full-time jobs. I could never pull that off as a person with a disability. Uh, how would you? How do you uh, do that and still find the time to write? Because, like in the evenings, because if you're going to. I heard like rather recently that if you're working a nine, even one nine to five and you're working all these hours and not uh, devoting much, that much time to your craft, chances are you're not going to be all that creative in the evening. No, I don't. Um, well, I'm old. So the good thing about being old is we get up really early because we can't sleep. <laughs> It's all, it's all how the biology ends up working for you. So when I write, I usually get up every morning at 4. I always swim at 5.30. So I have that window of like 90 minutes where I'll do a bit of writing. I always catch the bus to downtown at 6.45. And so I have that, that becomes my time to write. And what I will do, because I teach at the university and Sunday, I devote Sunday to, that's, that's my writing day, is Sunday. But it means that, yeah, I have to clear the schedule of other things. Yeah. 
But it's all part of being old and never being able to sleep proper. So you just get up and write. <laughs> I think we have another question over there. I think that Inuit writing is very limited. I think that, um, you know, our assimilation practices happen much later, much faster. Even things like when we do the treaty acknowledgements, nobody ever includes and the Inuit people who live on this land. And that's something I like to bring up to my university over and over again. I'm sure they just want me to shut up and go away, but I'll just keep doing that. I think that, you know, the actual writers, Inuit writers, are, it's very limited because our, our children don't make it through high school. You know, when there's a 76% attrition rate, that's terrible. As for the art, I, I like what the younger Inuit artists are doing right now. Really cool stuff, really different. They've pulled away from the polar bears and the igloos and the seals. And they're, you know, they're, they're really moving some uh, beautiful artwork through sculpture and through printmaking into modern day. And I'm so grateful for it. I just, I so appreciate it. But in terms of Inuit, the majority that do write usually write something that is like autobiographical. Or um, Michael Kuzajak, he, he takes in Inuit legends and he reworks them more. In, um, the person as an Inuit writer that I loved was um, Ipili. I just loved him. You know, he did really cool stuff. Like he ha has a story where Jesus shows up at a blues bar. Like it was just like so much fun, the kind of crazy far out stuff he'd put together. But there is very few. And I think not only are we not getting through education, but I think we also remain very much an oral culture where, you know, you sit around the kitchen table and you tell stories. And that's, you know, that's pretty much. And those stories are, are handed through. And, um, you know, in the, in the last uh, panel where they were talking about where are you from, I know for, for Inuit people, and you always like, you got to do the chin, and it's like, uh, where are you from? What we're really saying is, are you my cousin? <laughs> you know, like it's, and what you're really doing is you're, you know, you're trying to figure out lineage and, and how, you know, if you are cousins, like that kind of stuff happens, because I'll get that here in the South, like, where are you from? And then if I say Edmonton, they'll say, where are you from? <laughs> and so it, it, there's this, um, and it's really looking for lineage and whether or not you're, you're related in some way. So, but I think there's great stuff that is coming with younger generations. And I would like to see more young Inuit writers come forward. I, I'd really appreciate that. All right. So I am told that we are out of time, but this time. was... A very great <laughs> conversation. I had a lot of fun having you. talking with you. So, yeah, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, guys. <laughs>